Je ne pense pas, et vous ne me ferez pas dire que tous les immigrés, notamment ceux qui essayent... I do not think that all immigrants, least of all those who tragically cross the Mediterranean in search of a better life, are potential criminals or terrorists. But there are links. I believe this country should decree an immigration moratorium. Décider dans ce pays un moratoire en matière d'immigration. If the West relies on external shocks to border up, COVID may be failing the test of criticality. If anything, the pandemic is exposing Europe's southern frontier is shockingly porous. As many as 8,000 migrants, predominantly Moroccan, have illegally reached the Yuan enclaves of Teutan Melilla over a record span of two days, swimming around the 20-feet barbed wire fencing that Spain built in the 90s to prevent stampedes, or else walking the same route at low tide. The Spanish ride cries out invasion whilst accusing Moroccan authorities of stoking the inflow. The southern neighbor's failure to police it, its side of the equation through beefed-up patrols is arguably a riposte to the treatment for COVID at a Spanish hospital of a militant leader from the Western Sahara. This strip of flatlands on the Atlantic was hurriedly evacuated by Spain's military upon the death of military strongman Francisco Franco, with the militant group Polisario rising to claim independence against the heavily militarized grip of Rabat, which also happens to stake historical claims over Ceuta and Melilla. Unsettled as the backstory may seem, the images of young men erupting by the hundreds on Spanish beaches are already reminiscent of the refugee crisis six years ago. Though Europe's overall intake is still nowhere near 2015 levels, the migrant routes connecting North Africa to the continent are realigning eastward to Spain, with inflows into the country reaching 20-year highs. No guest on the show this week, just a detour into the latest flashpoint in Europe's unremitting migrant crisis from yours truly. So enjoy the episode. Great. Well, um, well, we have no guests on the show this week. I thought we'd just um, walk uh, our audience through some of the events that have unfolded over the last couple of days in terms of the migration issue, uh, which is, of course, a flashpoint when you when you think of the European news cycle over the past, uh, you know, five to ten years, particularly is, is crystallized around the 2015 crisis, but more largely the sort of a, the, the identity. Uh, crisis uh, in, in Europe, I think, is, is going to be really interesting for us to, to revisit uh, in this episode. Um, and, you know, what, what we've seen is um, this is uh, Spain is really having this essential role in this issue. And over the, the last couple of days, we've seen uh, as much as 8,000 uh, asylum seekers, migrants illegally crossing into uh, Ceuta and Melilla, uh, which are two enclaves that Spain still uh, holds in uh, African in the African continent. These are uh, small cities that are, you know, autonomous uh, territories within Spain's uh, within uh, within within Spain. Uh, although Morocco still still claims them, and we'll we'll get into some of the interesting geopolitics around around that issue. But we've seen uh, really an unprecedented amount of uh, migrants reaching into these two enclaves uh, just over the last couple of days. And what's so interesting um, is that. You know, this is this is a march. This is really a larger trend. It has unfolded over the last uh, year or so. Uh, you know, Spain is becoming uh, an entry point for illegal migration into Europe. I mean, a lot of our audience will be 
rather familiar with other entry points in Greece and, and Italy, right? Places like Lesbos and Lampedusa and Moria um, and uh, uh, islands in in uh, in uh, Sicily and Greece where uh, you know refugee camps were built. I mean, like uh, uh, asylum uh, seeker uh, camps were built in in 2015, and that those really kind of caught the uh, the attention of of, um, of the media. Uh, and now we're seeing uh, these flows kind of re, uh, realign along uh, Spanish routes. I mean, this is something that a lot of Iranians may not even be aware. But over the past year, the Canary Islands was a great uh, was a was a way station for for these uh, illegal migration routes, right? I mean, uh, we can get into some of the details, but um, but now now it's not just the Canary Islands. Now these uh, these two enclaves, right, Ceuta and Melilla. Um, uh, are are seeing uh, are seeing these? Uh, I mean, there's several thousands uh, that several thousand illegal migrants have reached uh, have reached uh, these two places over the last couple. can you explain how? Um, you know, for those who aren't uh, aware with Spain's geography, where Sultan Melilla are in the first place, and how how does it happen that Spain still controls them? Yeah, this is this is a really interesting point of context. I mean, um, Sultan Melilla have been uh, Spanish territory since the 17th century. Uh, you know, their, uh, their status is quite uh, particular when you think of Spain broadly. They're autonomous cities and not uh, autonomous regions. Uh, so there's, their report to the Spanish state is quite particular in terms of the uh, uh, policy issues over which they have, uh, over which they have uh, autonomy, right? But uh, they're really, they're, you know, firmly anchored within Spain's uh, territory. Morocco still claims them, right, for sort of historical reasons. And, uh, you know, I know you've caught up with uh, some of the issues in the Western Sahara and how those have been playing out. So maybe you want to say a couple of words. Yeah, I think it's, in, I mean, when there's kind of flashpoints on immigration, there's a lot of reasons, there's kind of more structural reasons, but sometimes there is uh, an event, a, a small event that just sparks the whole thing up. Uh, apparently, from what I understand, the Moroccans actually kind of let it happen. Usually they try to control, they try to you know, avoid that kind of flow of, of migrants because most of the migrants going right now uh, into Ceuta are actually Moroccan. They're not you know, from, from Sub-Saharan Africa, they're Moroccan. And the reason why the Moroccan government seems to be more lenient is that they want to punish the Spanish uh, for accepting the leader of the Fronte Polisario. He's currently in Spain being in, in hospital um, for for uh, illness he has, and the Fronte Polisario, for those who don't know, is a kind of independence movement who wants an independent Western Sahara. Again, Western Sahara is part of uh, Spain's empire. Uh, Morocco claims it, uh, and the Fronte Polisario is leading the fight to make sure Western Sahara is independent. And they want, and so the Moroccan government wants to punish um, Spain for for hosting him. Um, so yeah, it's it's a complicated issue, and. Um, I mean, it, it, it is an impossible situation for Spain because they, they they've got a, you know this colonial guilt and they don't want to be uh, too harsh on on the, on, on Western Sahara and Fronte Polisario. And at the same time, they've got diplomatic relations. They need to deal with with Morocco, so it's a tough situation. Yeah, and and just just going off of your your first point in terms of the demographics, really, this is a key point. As you as you said, um, I mean, if if you look at the um, uh, the inflows that have taken place over the last year, and as we said. Uh, since uh, pre pre COVID times, uh, the spike in inflows right had uh, been uh, had largely concentrated around the Canary Islands. Right, these were 
dugout boats, right? Like, um, uh, you know, uh, boats that were reaching uh, the Canary Islands, which is really just, uh, you know, a, a very short trek away from Western Sahara. Um, you know, th this is, I mean, I, I was, in fact, I was figuring out the, the distance uh, on Google Maps and uh, a few weeks ago, and it turns out that it's uh, a shorter trek than, uh, than, uh, the, the, than Manhattan. So it would, it would, uh, it would take you less. I mean, if, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a shorter, uh, length of, um, of, uh, of, of sea, uh, than, than, uh, Manhattan. So, um, you know, and, and as you said, yeah, the, the demographics are, are really, are, are playing out in, in interesting ways. I mean, um, in, in, there was another crisis in the early 2000s and the last central left government in Spain and those, uh, the migrants reaching into, uh, the Canary Islands were uh, largely from sub-Saharan Africa, as you said, right? They they came from uh, countries further down, f further south in Africa, Senegal, uh, right? The Ivory Coast, uh, Mauritania, uh, partly. But um, now these flows have really, um, are really more preponderantly, uh, predominantly uh, Moroccan. And uh, and as you said, the role that Morocco plays is is quite complex. I mean. Um, the Spanish right is blaming Morocco for um, using these pressure valves, right? For ha having, you know, having a very dubious role in the way that it patrols the flows into Spain. And, and just the the, the 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 important piece of context is: so Spain built these uh, high-rise fences uh, in order to make uh, crossing into Ceuta and Melilla uh, practically impossible. And there's still been, uh, you know, at, at several points, uh, instances where people have made it into Spain by just jumping over the fence. But, uh, I mean, quite frankly, the, the crossing by foot has been made uh, very, very, uh, very, very uh, difficult by these fences. And what we've seen in Ceuta and Melilla, and this is really, really a new development from what I can gather, is that migrants are increasingly, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, swimming, right? So they swim around the fence in order to reach Ceuta, right? Um, so, so this is a this is really a new phenomenon, and and, and as you said, Morocco is playing a very uh, a very uh, uh, a very questionable role. I mean, uh, in 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 one of the two, in, in, so I believe this is in in uh, in Melilla. Uh, there is uh, allegations being made by, pe by by people in the Spanish right that the Moroccan police was deliberately uh, allowing the inflow of people who were you know swimming. Uh, you know, uh, swimming at low tide around the fence and getting into Ceuta and Melilla. So, um, so yeah, uh, and and uh, and I wasn't aware actually of the the uh, the Polisario leader that you mentioned. And indeed, I had to look it up. And and you know, this is one of the this is one of the something that our, our British friends would uh, perhaps call kind of a a, a bureaucratic caca, right? It was just this this um, Polisario leader. And again, yes, this was this was a uh, liberation front. Uh, that was set up in the Western Sahara uh, after Spain withdrew from that territory uh, 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 upon Franco's death, um, when when Spain abandons the Western Sahara, and, and this new group was formed to claim independence for this uh, region of Morocco, which you know they they claim is historically uh, historically uh, you know separate from from uh, the, the Moroccan nation. So so they treated this this leader. In uh, in a hospital in northern uh, Spain, and then Morocco apparently is kind of a, is kind of a playing uh, playing politics around the issue and using uh, the police uh, and its control over uh, the flows as a pressure valve, which they you know they regularly kind of um, uh, release pressure 
in order to, to let the, these migrants travel. And this is really creating a diplomatic conflict uh, between the two countries. Speaking of politics, I think one thing that always has fascinated me about Iberian politics and Spanish politics in general is that it seems to be in a bit of a kind of a vacuum compared to other European countries. Um, you know, if you're making a pop culture reference, it's a bit like what's happening in Dawn and Game of Thrones. It seems it doesn't interest many people and it's very different from what's happening with the rest of the continent. Um, but I think what's interesting is in Spain is that the question of immigration has not been historically in the past 10, 15 years a hot button issue like it was in mm. most European countries. Now, it has slightly changed over the past few years with the rise of Vox and whatnot, but it's nowhere as close as it is in France or even in Germany uh, or Italy. Um, is this an impression or is this really a topic which has become important only of very recently? No, absolutely. I mean, I think I think a large uh, a, a large reason uh, for this is that um, you know historically, uh, but particularly since uh, the onset of, of Spanish democracy in 1978, the uh, migration into Spain has been has come predominantly from Latin America, so from countries that are culturally um, culturally proximate to Spanish culture. So the the kind of cultural uh, confrontations that you've seen in other parts of the continent, the kind of the, the cultural wedge driven by illegal migration, the, the issue of assimilating into European culture hasn't played out that heavily in Spain as it has in other in other countries. And and um, you know I, I you know I, I indeed indeed the, the rise of, of Vox, this sort of nationalist uh, conservative uh, party uh, is is kind of uh, placing immigration, you know, in the center stage of politics in a way that it just wasn't in, say, the early two thousands. Yeah. So I, I think it really also ties nicely into the European debate because you, you you we saw a, a couple of days ago, I think, well, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Michel Barnier, the former commissioner, come out with a really a really interesting uh, a statement on migration. Uh, I know you you you've got a lot to say about that. Yeah, um, which surprised quite a few people, but he said. Immigration in the EU is not working. Um, I think we have to take the time for three or five years to spend immigration. I'm not talking about students or refugees who we need to treat with humanity and care, but we need to examine all the procedures. We have to discuss Schengen with our neighbours. We have to apply controls on our borders. We need to be more rigorous. And he also said there are links between immigration and terrorist networks that infiltrate migrational flows. Um this this is a little bit surprising, coming from uh, from from Barnier, um, especially given how he you know he was caricatured to some extent in in British media as being this you know uh, wishy washy liberal and all about the the, the four the four freedoms of movement and and whatnot. Um, some people say it's a bit cynical from from Barnier, you know, after being this uh, figurehead for the EU adopting much more kind of nationalist uh, rhetoric. But there's also a reality. Michel Barnier wants to become uh, the next president of France. We, we covered this in our, in our special episode on, on France, and we both think it's it's unlikely he has a shot at becoming president, but he wants to become president. And there is a strong demand in France, but not just in France, there's a recent study by, by Fondapol uh, on saying that people in Europe are much more right-wing than they were 15 years ago. And on immigration, especially, they want control on immigration. They feel that it is out of control. They feel that it is kind of disintegrating the integration machine of, of different European countries. So I think it says a lot more about the European political climate. Um, but automatically, there is some accusation of cynicism, which sound true, because you've got 
we've got this European politician who is this kind of figurehead of the EU and figureness of openness and figurehead for openness and whatnot. And then he tries to pivot back to French politics and he's adopting these stances which you know you'd have associated with 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 uh, Le Pen ten years ago. So um, you know it's uh, maybe it says something about EU politics in the sense that it is largely disconnected from the kind of national realities which across all of Europe's nation states. And and I think that's something you have to take into account. Uh, on on the um, on his exact quote, I think. I think most people would agree you know, for, with, with the basics. Um, you know, maybe maybe a ban for three or five years is is too long. Maybe you know the populist posturing, uh, but there's a kind of general consensus, which is integration in many European countries isn't working. At least not to the extent it should be working. And we saw over the past few weeks, you know, people calling for the for the death of Jews. We had ro- roving bands of, of of drivers in London calling for the raping of Jewish daughters and whatnot. We, we, we know these things. We know, we know some, some things are very wrong and we need to focus on them. But again, it, it, feels, it feels a bit cynical and a bit, and a bit uh, you know, it, it doesn't fit with the, the image that Michel Barnier built over the past few years. Yeah, and it was also, so I think it is, it is so interesting to focus on, on Barnier. It, this, these um, uh, comments that he made on French TV calling for a freeze uh, effectively right on on migration into not just France the country uh, on which he's you know on, on which he's taking a political run but but largely the the, the you know the supranational uh, level of governance that uh, he is uh, that he is that he is um, that he's been uh, responsible for I mean th- this is really this is really unprecedented for for an, for an EU commissioner to come out uh, calling for for migration freeze even after he leaves right? Uh, even after he's left uh, his his role in, in Brussels, but um, but what what I thought was interesting is um, I mean the EU has a really uh, has a really complex uh, report to migration into specific member states, right? I mean like if you if you if you look at Spain, um, so once uh, so obviously uh, let's just remind our audience there is freedom of movement within the EU, so there there are no border checkpoints, which means that uh, illegal migrants who are who successfully reach into European territory are then able to uh, move across a member states, right? Uh, and then there's also some uh, EU-wide policies around, you know, asylum-seeking protocols, right? So the EU enforces uh, what I think is called the Dublin uh, protocol on member states and re- requires them, uh, you know, enforces some some pretty uh, pretty uh, tough legal standards for member states in terms of the uh, due process that they have to give to asylum claims, right? So that's that's kind of the the picture of how the the policies play out. But then the 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 actual management of asylum uh, seeking claims and how they're granted is not yet devolved uh, to the EU. This is still a very much a national policy that that member states handle, although they have to they have to abide by by the Dublin Protocol. So what what I thought was interesting is so. In terms of the Spanish case, once these uh, legal migrants make it into Spanish territory, it is Spain's responsibility to, first of all, of course, lodge them, right, house them in these facilities. And this, by the way, reminds of uh, a similar crisis that is that keeps unfolding, I think, from what I gather in the U.S.-Mexico border, uh, and particularly the, the role of unaccompanied minors and how you're, you know, how you, how you have to house them whilst their, their claims are being adjudicated. But uh, in terms of Spain, once these migrants make it into Spanish territory, Spain then has to decide whether or not it wants to limit their freedom of movement to go to, to go elsewhere in, in the in the in the the EU twenty seven, right? And this is really a tough call to make. I mean, I have to I have to cut a lot of slack to the left wing government currently 
uh, currently in power in Spain. And again, this is an alliance of the sort of the traditional central left with uh, some of the hard uh, hard left uh, movements of, you know, sort of the post-08 uh, indignados um, uh, spectrum, right? So, so the Podemos party. So this is really a tough, tough call to make for them uh, because, you know, if they, um, so obviously if they, um, if they're, if they're strict around, you know, whether a migrant, uh, you know, once they're in Spanish territory, whether they're allowed to go see a family member that they claim they have somewhere else in Spain, whether, you know, whether they allow those kinds of uh, movements, uh, you know, if they, if they, um, if they, if they, uh, if they limit them, that would that would create a huge crisis, and the Spanish left would be would be up in arms, right? Saying you know this is a fundamental violation of their right to go see their family member, even though they're not a not a legal migrant, they should be allowed to go see the legal migrants in their families or or the people who are who legally uh, reside or even citizens of Spain. But then on the other hand, um, by allowing these movements, the it, the issue of migration becomes European in scope. Because the EU doesn't want uh, another refugee crisis, right? It doesn't want uh, to have to negotiate quotas between member states. It doesn't want, uh, you know, France to complain that these illegal migrants are reaching through the Spanish-French border into France uh, because Spain doesn't patrol its borders uh, well enough, right? So, so it's a really, really tough call to make, and. Um, and the reality is that the EU um, is that the EU is not doing enough. To uh, to help member states uh, patrol the the borders externally. I mean, there's this there's this thing called the Frontex mechanism, whereby the EU dispatches these uh, these, uh, these patrols uh, to uh, areas where they're most needed. But the the fact of the matter is that Spain, uh, right um, behind the scenes, this this left wing government uh, in, in Spain is. Um, uh, arguing behind the scenes in Brussels for greater EU involvement, and this is from a left-wing government. Um, so I think it just goes to show that the you know the the migration uh, the migration uh, framework that governs uh, that governs the EU twenty seven is uh, you know is full of loopholes. You know you can get you know as as an illegal migrant you can get into one of the twenty seven countries, and then if that country doesn't do enough to uh, keep you you know in the spot whilst it judges your claim, then you can go to another country where, you know, you're not going to be, you're, you may not be welcomed in, in the first country, but you will be even less, even less welcomed in the, in the second country. Right. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it really, really is a, um, it really is a, a deficient uh, framework, I think in many, in, in many levels. So uh, I know, I know for a fact that I think half of the people who crossed the border illegally have been sent back to Morocco. So very, very, some, some pushback by, by the Spanish government. Um, I, I, I want to go back on the idea of a moratorium of freeze on immigration, because he actually qualifies that freeze with a few things. He says, I'm not talking about students or refugees who need to be treated with humanity and care. But I'm going to take the example of 2019 rather than 2020, because 2020 was a, a strange year for everyone. But, uh, but the, most immigrants come here for family reasons. Then you've got students very close by. Then you've got economic, and then you've got humanitarian. But economic is forty thousand out of two hundred eighty thousand in France. It's really nothing. So essentially, what you're saying is we need to have a moratorium on forty thousand economic immigrants. And he doesn't talk about family immigration. Um, but again, if you block family immigration, and Barney knows this for a fact, you're going to have problems with uh, the French courts. Now he says you can change the constitution. 
perhaps, but he's also going to have major issues with the European courts. And it's going to be really hard to convince the European Court of Justice um, uh, that, you know, you can, you can constrain family immigration. And it's going to be even harder to convince the European Court of Human Rights, which is a different court, which is uh, uh, part of the Council of Europe, whereas the ECJ is part of the EU. Uh, the, you're going to have to convince the European Court of Human Rights as well that uh, you're allowed to constrain um, family immigration. I think you know, so. That's, I think that's an issue with a lot of kind of right-wing uh, populists, you know, or, or kind of maybe more mainstream politicians who say, "Yes, we need to constrain immigration. We need to to to, to cut it down." The reality is, a lot of it, a lot of the immigration coming to Europe is not the result of discretionary. A lot of immigration to Europe is not a discretionary uh, fact. It is kind of a right. A lot of people come to Europe as a right because they've got family there, and there's nothing. There's nothing really that governments can do within the states of European law and often national constitutions. They can't really push back because they're, they're going to have. If they want to push back, they have to be ready for a major confrontation with their domestic courts. Again, that can be. Uh, you can go around there by changing the constitution a little bit. But then you're going to have a major legal fight against European courts, and I think Barnier knows this for a fact, and, and he doesn't talk about it that much because it's it's an uneasy position for someone who's a former commissioner and a former figurehead of the EU. Uh, but I think that's something more mainstream and even populist right politicians have completely ignored, which is the reality, the legal reality of uh, of Europe. And I, this is such a key point. In fact, this is something that we should really really make a point of clarifying for for our American audience particularly. I mean, you know, there's there's um you know, if you, you, you think of the migration issue in the states, uh there there there's very little that policy cannot achieve. Uh right? I mean, like uh right like there's, you know, whenever whenever, you know, whenever migration is discussed on Capitol Hill, right? It's always it's always about like whether like what's the makeup of the the, the migration that we want, right? We want do, do we want to go towards a points based system where we get to select uh, the high the highly qualified migrants that are going to help the economy, and how do we want to rebalance the kind of the, the annual intake of migrants coming into the, the, the states? Whereas in whereas this this is the, this is a really really great point, Francois. In terms of the EU, things play out much differently because uh, the flows are. I mean, some of the flows, and this is where I think France, uh, you know. Um, plays an interesting role, but the UK also to some extent, because uh, the migration from former colonies dates back uh, several decades. And a lot of the people that came here for work reasons in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and who arguably played a, a great role in sort of reconstruction efforts, right? This was a um, this was manpower that Europe needed in order to, to reconstruct its, its economy from, from the rubbles of the war. And um, and once they're here and they're settled and they have residency permits and work permits and they may even be on a pathway to citizenship, uh, constraining the ability of their families back home to come and reunite uh, is, is something that, again, is more of a legal, as you said, it's more of a, I mean, more of a kind of, kind of legal issue that policy can, I mean, as you said, I mean. It's, it's their right to come to you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I'm so interested in, in this point because uh, I, I do remember I do remember uh, much earlier than elsewhere in Europe, France already had the, the public debate in France already had sort of figured this out, right? That there, 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 there are places where policy cannot get you. I mean, you may you may have a very tough uh, asylum policy where you raise the threshold for 
people who arrive illegally to be granted asylum, right? Because you 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 may judge, you know, you may think that if you've uh, crossed the border illegally, then that should uh, penalize you in your claim for asylum or or things of that nature. You can you can play around uh, the edges of asylum law in order to either uh, tighten or um, or facilitate asylum. But when it comes to family reunification, this is this is a policy elusive. It's policy impervious. There's very little that lawmakers and governments can do. And as you said, if they try to do that, they would run into a massive conflict with the the human rights complex, which is which has blossomed in, in and not just in Brussels, as you said, but in the Council of Europe, which is which is in Strasbourg, right? Which is a sort of like larger uh, larger um, umbrella that that I think even Russia <laughs> sits. Yeah, Russia is part of it. Yeah. So this is really this is this is really. Um, so important and you know i think maybe you can tell us a little more about about france specifically i think the uk has has kind of its own story with migration from the commonwealth but in france right uh maybe even around the the algerian question uh what, what's what's kind of the story maybe you can give us a couple of uh, plot lines of how migration into france from former colonies in, in the maghreb and north africa and elsewhere how migration over i mean this 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 goes back to to the post-war uh, period right yeah exactly Exactly. There was a little bit of immigration from North Africa before World War II, but it really took off after the war, especially because there was a lot of demand for uh, you know, a workforce to rebuild France, which had been uh, devastated by, by World War II and then also had kind of barely recovered from, from World War I uh, three decades ago. And so a lot of people came and um, the expectation was they'd go back. Um, and the reality was, if you look at the kind of previous waves of immigration before that, they came from Italy, they came from Spain, they came from Portugal a little bit later, they came from Poland. And the reality was actually a lot of them left, you know, half of them to two thirds of them actually left it and went back because France was actually very demanding on, on, on its immigrants. And they said, OK, if you, if, you, if you want to live here, you're going to have to assimilate. And, you know, a lot of people changed their first names to take uh, French names or they would kind of franchise their last names, you know, from kind of complicated Polish name to pronounce in French, they kind of cut it. Um, and uh, for example, the former French ambassador Romain Gary uh, was born in Poland, in, in Russian Poland then. And uh, he, he, I forgot his, his, his Polish last name, but his mom took a, a kind of more French last name, Gary. So it was very common. And then the kind of 60s, 70s, with kind of a shift, and there was a 70s, 80s, more, more likely actually, there was a shift where uh, demands on immigrants were less important, assimilation was less stringent. So what happened is actually a lot of, a lot of people who used to leave actually stayed in France. And they, 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 and to be honest, the French government wasn't ready for that. They, they, they thought people would go back. So they had to build facilities. And so we built the HLM, which, uh, which are kind of uh, affordable um, housing, and especially in the French banlieue and, and whatnot. And, but we weren't prepared for it. And it was a bit of a surprise. And then on top of that, in the 19, uh, late 1970s, we had the Regroupement Familial, which allows family immigration. Um, then it was progressively extended to kind of uh, not just kind of the nuclear family, but then it kind of allowed kind of, kind of a more broad understanding of what family was. And, and you reach a point in the kind of 80s and 90s where, where a lot of people from North Africa stayed, and that wasn't expected. And that created a lot of tensions. It kind of changed the, demo, the, the, the demography of uh, electoral demography of, uh, of uh, French, uh, French banlieue and, and, and whatnot. And so, um, again, we reached a point when we realized that, uh, you know, economic immigration in France is only 40,000 out of 280,000. It's, it's peanuts. It's really nothing. Most people coming to France are either students, that's 90,000, 
or through kind of family regrouping, that's also 90,000. And you know, humanitarian is, is 37,000. But the, the large chunk is, is um, for students and for uh, family regrouping. And uh, yeah, I mean, to go back on the question of assimilation, there's a really, really good book for those who want to read about, about French um, politics and society, which was published by a pollster called Jérôme Fourquet, called, called The French Archipelago. And in the French Archipelago, he, there's no uh, ethnic data in France because kind of historical reasons, but he studied the names given to, to children across generations. And what was really interesting is he kind of zoomed in to the north of France in the late 1930s to early 1950s because there's a lot of Polish migrants who came after World War I to work in the mines, in the northern mines of France, and, you know, in Nord-Pas-de-Calais and whatnot. It was really interesting is there was really a huge influx of Polish names given in the late 1930s. But what is interesting is progressively that number kind of flattened until it completely died out in the early 1950s. And Fourquet explains the reason why um, the Polish people assimilated when they didn't go back home to Poland, but the reason why when they were in France they assimilated is because the flow to Poland was cut. And when you've got constantly newcomers coming from your home country, it kind of stops the process of assimilation because you've got newcomers from Poland who kind of keep you in check and make sure you know, you're know you still Polish and whatnot. And and so, you know, after the, after World War II, uh, and obviously the, uh, Poland was under the Soviet control, so immigration became a lot, a, a lot harder. And so the influx of Poles kind of stopped pretty much overnight. And they all started giving their kids French names. And I think what is happening in France is you had large influx of, of North Africans coming in, but the flux never, never stopped. They kept coming. And so the pressure to assimilate actually wasn't as strong as it was for the Poles, for the Spanish, for the Italians, because you'd have newcomers coming in all the time, and they would be much closer to the to you know to the Algerian culture and the Moroccan culture than they would be to French culture. So they kind of stopped this process of assimilation, and especially given how concentrated uh, French immigration was from you know countries in former colonies, especially in North Africa. Um, so yeah, I think it's an um, interesting interesting insight onto why assimilation. First of all, I think the French were less true believers in assimilation in the 70s, 80s because you know it's it's demanding, it's tough. And also because, you know, people kept coming from, from North Africa, from Algeria, from Morocco, and that kind of uh, reduced incentive to assimilate. Yeah, this is, this, is, this is really, really interesting. I mean, we've got, to, um, we, we've got to discuss migration in all of its scope, right? Uh, yeah. Right, like... Yeah, we should do an episode with, with, um, with relevant people. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and, you know, and, and, and I know this is, I mean, there's somehow the, the migration issue... Um, really really came to a head in 2015 right there were there was a string of books and we you know we had uh chris caldwell on the show uh, a few weeks ago to, to discuss italy and he's he's a he's a prolific author uh, who's written a lot on, on migration and the cultural um the, the cultural uh kind of echoes of the issue in terms of the assimilation and the integration and obviously the the role of islam um and and, and you know there, there's also douglas murray's book uh, on the issue um, but as you said, this isn't just, I mean, if you limit your, your focus to policy and what policy can achieve, then you're missing out on all of the things that happen once, uh, the, once the flows have, uh, solidified, right. And once there is, you know, annual inflows of people coming into Europe, uh, under any, uh, under any policy, what be it rather stringent or rather permissive, but the issue of, of assimilation tends to crystallize further down the line. And it's, it's an issue that in Europe we're now seeing, you know, wasn't really uh, thought out well in advance. Right. 
uh, that's that's the least you could say. And maybe we should say also a couple of words about uh, the role of NGOs, right? I mean, um, if, if you if you think back at 2015, um, one of the, one of the points of contention uh, in in the way that the EU handled the crisis was whether uh, the NGOs, uh, whose role is to assist uh, asylum seekers, right, uh, once they're in the country. I mean, uh, their stated uh, role, if you if you ask them. Uh, is to uh, make uh, the journey less harsh uh, once the migrant has reached uh, the country, right? They, they shouldn't really be playing a role in facilitating people who want to leave uh, Morocco or Syria to get to Europe. That's, that, that would pose a whole lot of legal problems. And that's, that's kind of the gray area where I think a lot of the NGOs have operated. And they've run into a lot of, a lot of troubles with, uh, with uh, national law in some countries. I mean, We've seen, you know, countries like Hungary tighten, uh, tighten transparency requirements for NGOs in terms of the, you know, the, uh, the um, how transparent they have to be with the government about their activities because there's there's a, a suspicion, not even just from coming from conservative uh, right wing governments, but I think more largely when you think when you think of how the issues debated in Brussels, uh, the the role of the NGOs is really really uh, really complex. Um, so yeah, and yeah. not sure if you remember there was a controversy a few years ago, where some um, humanitarian ships were spotted essentially doing um, back and forth between Libya and Italy, um, and you know I understand there's there's, there's a lot of um, lot of lives to be saved in, in the Mediterranean. There's a moment where you start wondering to what extent are they playing uh, the, the role of a smugglers. Now there's also these organisations are so very powerful because. They are facing against a hostile public opinion, which has turned against uh, against immigration pretty strongly across most European countries in the past few years. And they've done a really good job at lobbying different European institutions. I know, for example, the European Court of Human Rights, they've got many judges who are former former uh, members of these uh, NGOs, um, you know, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, all of these different organizations. And, um, you know, and, and it creates kind of an uncomfortable situation where sometimes they have to decide on cases in which amnesty is involved when they are kind of former amnesty people themselves. So, you know, it's, um, but I'm always impressed to see how influential these organizations are. When you look, for example, you know, uh, again, in France, a country which has really turned against immigration in the past few decades, when Macron wanted to toughen up uh, the immigration laws, again, you know, you can toughen up immigration laws, but, you know, you're still not dealing with the fact that to limit immigration, you need to have kind of a fight with European judges and probably change the constitution. But when Macron wanted to kind of toughen up immigration laws in France, he kind of went halfway, kind of back down, partly because of political backlash within his party, but also partly because there's massive lobbying for these kind of different organizations. So yeah, don't underestimate these organizations. They, they, they have their values and they're going, willing to go very far to defend them. This has been this has been a great uh, this has been a, a worthwhile break from our regular programming. Uh, we had no guests this week, but we thought it we thought it'd be worth just just taking the time out to kind of uh, you know play play at the heart of the news cycle. And, and before you leave, don't forget there is no Geico ads on this show. So the best way for you to support us is to like the show, to subscribe on Spotify, to rate us on Apple Podcasts. You know, even write a review. It's always fantastic to read what you guys think of the show and your your insights and uh, yeah all of it every bit helps anyways see you next week